0: On Sagittarian Matters, we break up with diet culture and embrace femininity with my very special guest, Virgie Tovar. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the matter with you? Sagittarian Matters. Hello from San Francisco. Fetch just came out yesterday, and I have got some tour dates for you. First, tonight, July 21st, I'll be at CCA in San Francisco at 6 p.m. with special guest Julia Wirtz. July 25th, Portland, Oregon at Powell's. July 29th, Seattle, Elliott Bay with special guest Ellen Forney. And then you can find me at FlameCon in New York City, August 19th and 20th. I do not have a separate New York reading date yet, but I am working on it. Thank you to everyone who came out in Los Angeles to support the book. Thank you to Sawyer and Jill for the cakes. And thank you this week to podcast supporters, Sarah Kistner, Maggie Frankel, and Wayne Wright. And as always, Shoshana Ruth Wechter. Please tip my producer, Chris. We do this out of the goodness of our hearts because we think it's fun. But Chris is having a baby very soon. You can send him a tip to hornetleg at gmail.com via PayPal. Send him $5, send him a million dollars, tell him your name, and we'll read it on the air. We love you, Producer Chris. And Ponyo cannot wait to babysit your upcoming child. On with the show. Enjoy. Virgie Tovar is an author, an activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She's the founder of Babe Camp, a four-week online course designed to help women who are ready to break up with diet culture. She pens a weekly column called Take the Cake. She edited an anthology called Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion. And she has a book coming out with Feminist Press in 2018. I suggest you hop on board the Virgie train now so that you do not miss this incredible opportunity to read and enjoy and hear about a really awesome feminist. I was very happy to invite Virgie into my temporary condo fortress in San Francisco for a bubble tea and some dog time. Now please enjoy my talk with Virgie Tovar. Virgie Tovar, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you. (laughs) What's your sign? I'm a Taurus. You are? Yes. You're the most lively Taurus I've ever met. Really? Yes. My mom is a Taurus. My first high school boyfriend was a Taurus. I have a friend at his She's a comedian. But I think of them as being less bubbly.
1: Yeah, I'm extremely bubbly. It's sort of, I mean, to be fair... I'm not sure if I'm actually naturally effervescent or if it's a survival technique from having a horribly emotionally volatile family where I was expected to lift everyone's spirits every single day from the depths of their um, trauma, I guess.
0: Oh, oh the court jester. <laughs> yes, exactly. I see, I see. Yes. I, I, I really, I love a nice gallows humor, too. Yes. i just, like, that's why I like Ali Liebigott. Yes, 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 yes. It's like the darkest times, and then she says something awful, and then you're like, oh, thank God somebody said that.
1: (laughs) Exactly, yes.
0: Will you tell my listeners who you are?
1: Yes, well, I am a writer and a lecturer. Um, I am a fat activist, so I do a lot of work around... um, educating people around fat discrimination and size-based bigotry. And, you know, we're in this kind of cultural moment where it feels completely acceptable culturally to make fun of fat people, to (laughs) be... Ponyo (laughs) agrees with you. (laughs) Yes. To be, um, like, outwardly discriminatory um, to people because of their size. And also there's a, a huge culture around food surveillance and like control around what people eat and how they eat and uh, a really big obsession with health um, and morality and stuff like that around those things. And so I do a lot of work to Essentially, explain to people the history of what diet culture is, the history of fat discrimination, um, how, in fact, this is a form of bigotry, and individuals should not be trying to conform through controlling their weight. We as a culture should be working to eradicate this bigotry because it's a social problem. Um, So, I travel all over the world, mostly in the United States. Um, I do a lot of lectures at universities and stuff like that. And also, I do a lot of writing um, about this issue and that's kind of what and i also i wear very tiny clothes that is also a form of activism as a 250 pound woman drop drops the mic
0: (laughs) (laughs) walks away i just heard you on another podcast talking about how diet culture is still very prevalent but instead of people saying i'm on a diet they have different kinds of limiting language that they use and like eating clean and stuff can you talk about that
1: yes so I just did an interview with racist sandwich which is really good a really good podcast um, and it's interesting because I still use the phrase diet culture and I use the word dieting when I talk about my work um, but dieting the, the word dieting is going out of vogue um, because people think of dieting as something that's kind of old school right it's like dieting is something that people you know, used to do with Richard Simmons or you know some other kind of exercise guru and it involved you know eating a lot of Grapefruit and cottage cheese and stuff like that. And that's not what I'm doing. Um, now the diet industry has done a really good job of morphing with the cultural trend of essentially obfuscation. Um, there's there's in- increasing trend culturally in a lot of different areas, not just this one, where language and meaning are really, really, really divorced. Um, and this is true in the diet industry. So essentially what they've picked up on is that people don't want to identify as a dieter, they don't want to identify as someone who's a weight loss addict or you know somebody who's weight loss oriented. They want to um, capture people who are ready to yeah do clean living or who want to um, change their life. And it, it's very it's interesting because dieting used to be understood as kind of a, a time bound thing. Like you would be on a diet for six to eight weeks and you would lose a certain number of pounds and that was the thing, right? And that, that kind of you kept doing it over over and over and over and over again. And now um, people are more interested in this overarching um you know sense that this is gonna be a lifetime change. Um that this isn't a diet because a diet is time bound and this what they're doing, they're talking about altering the way that they live and the way that they eat forever. Right. And and I mean to be honest, that language is not new, like this language has existed for a long time. Um but with the rise of body positivity and the rise of um, just the awareness that these different, especially on social media, people of a lot of different kinds of body sizes are advocating and showing up and showing different ways you can have a body and I think people are really responding, but what's really unfortunate is rather rather than responding with, oh, this is a big problem we actually need to stop that phobia, we need to end this problem. They're changing the language, which is, it reminds me a lot of like other social justice things, where, like, for example, you know, when people started asking uh, people to be anti racist, people who, maybe some, some people who weren't ready to hear that or something, rather than saying, yeah, let's think about racism as a cultural problem, they, they thought, okay, how do we change the words about how we speak about this? Rather than actually working on racism, why don't we change the language around how we discuss racism and not call it racism anymore? And I feel like it's a very similar thing with, um, with this issue, where I feel like a lot of people aren't ready to let go of fat phobia, aren't ready to let go of pursuing the fantasy of thinness and thin privilege, um, and aren't ready to let let go of the hierarchy of body size, um, and so what they're doing is saying, "I'm not doing that anymore. I'm living clean. I'm doing this other thing." But at the at the end of the day, if your behavior is primarily focused on weight maintenance um, and maintaining a low weight, it is a diet. Um, if it's if it's a behavior or um, or like an eating pattern or a movement pattern that would lose all appeal if it either kept your weight neutral or it actually led to Weight gain, and it, it like, if you would not be interested in the behavior, if it didn't have
0: a weight loss component, it's a diet. The end. Again, you drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking about diets, I saw you tell a story in Portland at Back Fence, PDX, mm. about a time when you were a young person and you were dieting, and you went to Italy, and you did not avail yourself of the delicious items there, and so you had a food graveyard. And we got to honor all the foods that you did not eat. Yes.
1: Well, so um, it's interesting because I dieted for almost 20 years. And I called it dieting, but it was, I mean, it was a mild eating disorder. When I was in Italy... Um, I was studying there for a, for a quarter, so about three months, and I had this transformation fantasy. Um, like a lot of people on diets, uh, I thought I'm gonna go to Italy and I'm going to become thin and then I'm gonna come home and no one's gonna be able to recognize me. I'm gonna come out of the international terminal in my amazing, like, you know, scarf and I'm gonna look super euroed out or whatever. and um and no one's going to recognize me because i'm going to be so thin and so tastefully appointed um and in order to get those kinds of really rapid really drastic results i thought i have to starve myself so um i went overseas to this incredible land of delicious things and i i told myself I wasn't going to eat anything so that I could become small. Um, so I'm sitting there, you know, I mean, there were so many meals that I passed up, so many delicious um, options, obviously, in Italy. And kind of like the 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 real, uh, the coup de grace or whatever of the horribleness was um, at Easter, they surprised all the people in the group, in my undergraduate group, um, with this like, 12 course Easter feast and we were in Naples, right? And it was like, literally, it was like, when you're kind of in restriction mode, somebody saying, surprise, there's a 14 course Easter feast is one of the worst things you could ever hear. And it's terrible, right? Because you're, you're hungry, right? Like you're hungry. So food sounds amazing no matter what it is. Um, you're in this really intense shame place. And so you're ashamed of being hungry. You're ashamed of wanting the food. And also it's like, I don't know. It really is, it really is like waggling some delicious, it's like a mirage in the middle of the desert in, in some ways. Um, because I knew I had sort of convinced myself there was no way that I could eat anything because I had this fantasy and the fantasy was more important than my hunger or the access to something delicious or a really special experience like this. Um, And so I sat down and I had... One spoonful of food from the first several courses. And then they had, you know, like three dessert courses. And I left before that. And I went up to my room and kind of crawled under my blankets and fell asleep. And it was just literally the worst, right? And so, anyway, the food cemetery, once I stopped um, dieting and restricting, I kind of had this incredible experience of rage um, that I had had all of these moments and days and meals stolen from me by this horrible, this horrible lie that like, that I should have to change my body in order to have access to the things in the life that I wanted. Um, and so I honor those like fallen meals, right? Like in my head in this like food cemetery where I'm like, and, and the biggest in my food cemetery, the biggest, you know, massive gravestone is for that Italian feast that i miss because of dieting so hate you dieting r.i.p um italian feast
0: (laughs) i hope that i hope that you have had some kind of reparations since then (laughs) yes italian food
1: yes yes i mean i don't know if the if i don't know if the feast will ever come around again but it might um but yeah i've had plenty of of opportunities to uh recoup um all those lost experiences
0: (laughs) i'm so glad I thought of that. It was different, but I was in Australia, and my friend's Italian grandma Mm. was making us food. And my friend had not communicated clearly to the grandma that I was vegetarian, but I didn't eat cheese because I've been vegan for, like, 20 years. And so I got there, and she had made this very beautiful, beautiful, like, homemade pasta, homemade sauce, like, thing covered in cheese. And I just, like... I mean, so that I had to eat, like, an iceberg lettuce leaf. And, so, and I was like, <laughs> it's fine. It's totally fine. So I had, like, bread and this iceberg salad and some olives. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> it was so horrible. Right. It was so horrible to be so close. So I, 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 I can't say, you know, fuck fuck you, lactose intolerance or vegan. But, but I still, I was like, oh, my God. I was really feeling for you looking at that 12-course meal. And I was yes. like, damn you dieting. Like, damn you culture that's, like... You deserve love if yes. you can be at this certain size. You deserve clothes and love and respect and worth if you are this size to this size. And above that, maybe you should just work harder by d- depriving your body of nutrients mm-hmm. to get to that size. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes. Uh, one thing I was very interested in having you on the podcast for about was you are a very uh, lovely feminine person. You are a feminine person and recently because of the people I roll with, I roll with a lot of masculine kind of people, I have like a team of femme friends but lately I've been talking to people about gender and a lot of people I found when they're trying to embrace strength and they're trying to like not gender conform and get more andro, they all go towards the masculine side of the spectrum. And I just find that across the board. I've been interviewing youth for this gender project I'm working on uh, with Judith Butler and Kenneth Corbett. And we've been talking to kids, and kids are like, yeah, I didn't want to be seen as weak. I wanted to be seen as strong. So a lot of them have, you know, migrated towards the masculine end of the spectrum. And for me... Rocco and I talked last week on the podcast about how it's kind of internalized misogyny of being like, oh, you want to be seen as strong? And I know for me as a teenager, I wanted people to listen to me and not think I was stupid mm. or like discredit me. And so I tried to look more masculine and it didn't work. I didn't get male privilege, mm. shockingly. <laughs> but, um, you know, it took for me to uh, kind of go gay. And not have the male gaze to reclaim femininity and be like, no, this is powerful and strong and everything I want it to be. And I'm not pandering to a man. I just like the way this looks. And it's for me. Mm. So anyway, I wanted to have you come around because you're feminine and you're not gay necessarily true. It's like, it's interesting because I'm really, um, I'm deeply
1: invested in and embedded within like a queer sociality and a queer politic, um, but not a queer sexuality. So it's like, I mean, and, and even that statement doesn't feel hundred percent true. Right. And I mean, cause like, I mean, it's like my story around gender is really specific to me, in my opinion, about my size. Um, so, growing up I was always the biggest girl and I was the biggest kid in general um, but I had a lot of what I now call gender confusion um, because I grew up raised, I was raised by women, super feminine like I I was raised by femmes you know, um, and I was kind of in a almost, you know, like the stealth matriarchy that emerges uh, when you're... Um, so, I, like, my, my family is from Mexico, and one thing that's interesting is I grew up with a super uh, misogynist a uh, parental figure, like a dad figure, um, but what's interesting in like Latin American structures around like gender and control and whatever is that a lot of times like when misogyny is very um, behaviorally focused, there's a lot of like control around you know, how women dress and like how much w- money women can make and all this stuff. Often there's these really interesting. Um, psychological resiliency things that happen. Um, so like my mom and grandma were extremely um, manipulative. And they, I kind of call it like weaponized femininity, right? Um, they were really good at weaponized femininity. And so, you know, he was... And, and with my grandma, who is kind of like my mom figure... Um, super femme. And she kind of used this particular femme gender performance to kind of get stuff. And she kind of taught me how to do it too. And, and she saw gender as very gamified. She saw her relationship to my grandfather as very gamified. And I don't want to say that they don't, they didn't have intimacy. But she very much saw like this is how you get men to pay for your life. Um, and, and she kind of, and it's, it's funny as a point of tension where I'm somebody who grew up in the U S where I've been trained to believe that if I were going to marry a dude, um, he would be a big part of humanizing me and being like, he'd be a big part of fulfilling me emotionally and he'd be amplifying me. And so, um, our expectations around relationships with dudes are really, really different. Cause she's like, dudes aren't there to make you happy. Dudes are there to pay for your life. And I'm like, anybody in my life has to be an integral part of my soul. And so, but again, very American, very American mentality. Um, All that to say, I grew up with these femmes um, and um, I was a fat girl. And as a result of that, I got treated um, in a way that was very confusing to me in terms of gender. Like I knew I was a girl, but at recess, all my friends wanted me to play the boy role. Like whenever we would do, um, like we would do heterosexual reenactments, right. Where it was like, all of us were girls, but we would reenact straight romantic storylines, like that we'd read about in books, that we'd seen in movies. And it was never even discussed who would play the boy. It was just understood that I was the one who was the best position because of my size. So I spent years and years and years pretending to be a boy um, during playtime. And it was really confusing. It was really frustrating. And it was really kind of humiliating, you know, um, because I wanted to practice being feminine and my friends, my smaller friends were practicing hetero kind of at my expense, you know, and I would like do things like pick them up and I would be the one who kind of like if we were um, like hugging or something, I would be the one who was behind them. So it was a lot of me posturing as masculine. Another part of the confusion came from clothing um, because nothing in the girls department fit me. And so it was just kind of this, the sign of, you know, this section is supposed to be for me and it's the girl section and yet nothing in the girl section fits me. And so, um, I, a lot of times, and this is true of a lot of fat girls, um, will wear boy clothing because it fits better because the sizing is more expansive for boys and men. Um,
0: and so, can, there, I, can I say yeah. that I wish that it meant that you had to go to the women's section. So you were wearing like pantsuits with. <laughs> With like giant shoulder pads when you're like yeah. seven years old.
1: Yes, no, totally. I mean, that was one of the things. That was, that's another tool, right? Where like you end up shopping in the women's section. Um, and, and, and you know, and it's really, it's just very disorienting. And then the last thing, and one of the things that I found really probably the more powerful, one of the most powerful parts of the gender confusion for me was that um, boys in my class would treat me more like a boy than a girl. Like I was watching all this media that. was showing me that girls are these delicate flowers and in a lot of ways the way that um certainly for me growing up the way that i started to understand gender was how boys treated me and i saw i saw gender compliance or like being a good woman or being a good girl as deeply connected to male attraction um and these these boys were treating me like i was a monster like that i was a huge impenetrable ugly Thing, you know, and and they treated me nothing like they did my smaller counterparts. Um, And again, it felt more like I was one of the guys, but I I didn't even get to have the intimacy. It was mostly like they would punch me and like treat me really roughly. And it felt much more in line with how they treated other boys. And so there was a lot of gender confusion for me growing up and just kind of this like real anger um, around the lack of access I had to femininity. And I remember my mom. Um, you know, she would often want to dress me up in really femme clothes because she really loved to dress super femme. Um and I would get so angry with her. Like she would sometimes say, like, why don't why don't you wear something pink? And I would get so mad at her because it, I was so angry that she didn't understand that I didn't get to have that because I was fat. And I was so enraged that she had brought it up, you know, and then as I came into um healing around my body size when I was introduced to fat activism um one of the first things that I noticed was that all of the fat activist um world that I had access to was run by high fems and I was and these were all queer fems I was just completely blown away I'd never seen anything like it really even though I'd been in um queer community for a while it was, I had not ever met high fems ever um and all of a sudden I'm in this movement where almost everyone is high femme. And I, so I was blown away by the fashion. I was blown away by the affect. Um, there was a lot of kind of like glamour, both in terms of, you know, clothing, but also in terms of attitude. Um, and there was kind of this incredibly beautiful untouchableness about the way they did gender that completely blew my mind. And to be honest, and this is something that I don't talk a lot about, um, but, when I met them, it was their, it was the way that they did gender that made me so desperately and eagerly dive into fat activism. Um, because I just, I'd always wanted that. And I didn't know that I could have that as a fat person.
0: Yeah. And now you have it in spades. (laughs) Yes. You totally have it. Um, God. So how, how did your fashion change? How did your gender change? For me, I feel a little bit like I'm in drag, mm. but that's just kind of part of the deal. Mm. Like, I don't... Like, I'm like, oh, it feels kind of like drag. Great. That's just part of my deal. Like, mm. maybe I'm like, just like I feminine gay man. Just like prancing around. But like, how would you now describe your, your gender and your gender performance and how you are in the world? Are you high femme? I mean... There's a part of me
1: that feels like yes. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, definitely identify as femme. And for me, there's definitely an intentionality about the way that I do gender. And I, I see it, again, as a fat person, I see it as a very disruptive and a very provocative act to be as femme as I am in this body. And I know, and, and I will say, I, I can't necessarily, I will say, I don't necessarily think of it as drag, but I do think of it as performative in the sense that I will use an outfit to modulate an environment. I will use an outfit with the knowledge that not only does it give me joy to wear the outfit, but it also gives me an, perhaps an equal amount of joy to disrupt. Um, because at the end of the day, like I, I live in San Francisco um, it's increasingly norm core there's an increasing aesthetic of homogeneity and um, and, and I find that people are really committed to Roles, right, and kind of not really standing out, and the understanding that standing out is not only an "quote unquote" infraction of like gender expectations, but also infraction of of class expectations, mm-hmm. um, because the whole concept is that restraint is this deeply tasteful act that like middle class and affluent people just naturally do, um, and of course, that's there's nothing natural about that. I mean, I hate that kind of like naturalizing language of stuff. That is completely contrived, but that that those sort of that class uh, that sector um, is really good at naturalizing their behavior and pretending that everybody should be doing it. But the point is, like, I know when I'm showing up with like cleavage and bright pink and lipstick and heels, that not only am I, you know, being aggressive, right? I'm being aggressively feminine. I'm also being um, aggressively visible in a culture that seeks to hide me and I'm intentionally bringing like I'm intentionally bringing a working class aesthetic into a space that is sort of not not where that isn't really welcome or that really isn't seen and I find I'll admit I find a lot of joy in the knowledge that they don't know if I'm doing it on purpose or not, or they might even think that I've, do- that I've just done this day class A act without any knowledge of what the class rules are. Mm-hmm. I, I find it very delightful to kind of mess with that and mess with their heads a little bit. Um, so like for instance, I'll go, like I, um, I went to this opening at MoMA and I kind of knew the general, the folks who were going to be there, I knew they were going to be like tech people and their partners, um, and and tech people are kind of leading this um, regression into suburbanization in this really terrifying way, um, and they're and they're leading the way in the regression of gender roles and things like that, and it's kind of terrifying to me. So I knew that I knew that was kind of who was going to be there, and so I decided that I was going to wear not only this dress where you could see all of my cleavage. I've got like fourteen inches of cleavage, perhaps, between Between eight and thirty-seven inches of cleavage, Um, and so I was like, I was gonna wear a dress that was totally, like, completely cleavage um, enhancing. And then I thought, well, how can I modulate the behavior? How can I mess up even more? And so I put on these bright orange sandals. And then I was like, how can I mess it up even more? And I put on these socks, like these little tiny socks that didn't even match. They weren't even – it wasn't even a cute, like, sandal sock combo because that's a thing. Yeah. Um. This was not that. And then I was like, well, how can I mess it up even more. And I drew on a mustache. And so I kind of just went to this event and it was incredible, right? Because there were a lot of the same folks I thought were going to be there, um, like cis hetero couples kind of like playing house. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the women in particular were horrified by my outfit. And, and I, I found it very joyful and playful and fun that they didn't know that I had done it on purpose. I think that they thought that maybe I didn't know any better, and um, and I just sort of I was very amused by it. So I will say that I'm a little bit of a I will say with gender. I think I'm a little bit of a troublemaker, um, and in that way, I could see I could see like the drag kind of um, piece in it, and it's it's very campy for me. But I I would be lying if I said. It gives me a lot of erotic agency. It gives me a lot of pleasure. And it does feel exceedingly authentic to me.
0: It does seem like a queer gender. Yes. Like something about taking femininity to that height and playing with it and knowing that you're like, you know, like I'm dressed like, like for me being like I'm dressed like a psychotic Donna Reed at some point. (laughs) On purpose yes it's not because i'm doing it to please my man or whatever yes that's so great so much like performance art just every day. it's just so fun i guess i see it as that too like as an illustrator i'm like oh i like high contrast mm. you know like i want my hair to be black because i like high contrast and like that's the most fun thing for me to look at and like the outfits i wear i'm like i would like to draw this
1: I just want to know, can I still be body positive if I want to lose weight? Okay. I've got some thoughts, please. (laughs) I mean, essentially I would say that I see dieting behavior or weight loss oriented behavior as completely and utterly in line with a sexist misogynist history and also a history of like classism, ableism and racism. Um, So, I think that essentially I'm going to say the answer is no (laughs) for me. Um, at the end of the day, um, weight control is essentially an act that makes sense within a particular historical narrative and a particularly oppressive, like historical vacuum and cultural vacuum. Um, I want, I like to offer a counter counter example of our, um, Western aesthetic of thinness against, um, other parts of the world where women right like right now in other parts of the world where women go to extraordinary lengths to become as fat as possible because where they live um, in their culture fatness is the height of feminine beauty and in particular um, women gain weight in order to be more marriageable to, to men um, and and so like I think that what's difficult is it's really it's really hard to imagine life where weight loss isn't associated with beauty health. Wellness, all this sorts of stuff. But we need to understand that that's a social construction. I think the other thing that's really important to remember is like, A, body diversity is a thing. Um, B, you can't control your body size. I know that, the, and again, I know this sounds counterintuitive, right? But what we found is that when people, what science has found, not me, not us, um, <laughs> is that um, as people, uh, attempt to control their weight, they actually, uh, gain weight, um, and, and attempts to decrease weight leads to weight gain. Um, and so one of the things that really doesn't make sense to me is I'm like, we're doing this horribly often unpleasant behavior around weight loss, and it's actually not leading to the outcome that we are intending. And so then it, for me, it becomes like a greater issue of like, um, when are we going to let go of this behavior does like what else what else do we need to know the science is showing us this one thing um because i think what's hard with the science i'm going on like i'm going on a little bit of a diatribe but (laughs) but um with the science right a lot of focus is on the benefits of being a smaller size um the thing that often and Almost always gets ignored is that A, um, there's no real method that leads to that. And B, you can't compare someone who has always been a small size to someone who was once a fat person. Or uh, because you just can't compare the two. Because sometimes, a lot of times, uh, or rather, a lot of times when somebody is pursuing weight loss, the measures they take to get to achieve that end goal um, often nullifies any potential benefits of the actual weight loss according to science right um anyway that was the long answer the short answer is i believe the answer is no
0: i have to i have to maybe i have to agree with you i guess as somebody who like one of my very very best friends is a fat activist and for me the idea of like weight loss or like you know like talking about a diet or something on like instagram or like obsessing about my body like and that feels like selling her out Mm. it feels like talking out of both sides of my mouth Mm. like the idea of being like you're great you're beautiful this is awesome let's change the standard and then the idea of then going on a diet feels insane it feels like double talk or duplicitous and so you know yeah i like the idea of changing how society views or values people and bodies maybe even by using your own body if that's where someone's at instead of trying to starve yourself and then be like no no i'm totally body positive i'm like your skeleton ally okay (laughs) um other question this was a feminine woman we both know said should i go camping
1: yes but do it on your terms what are your camping terms? Do you have camping terms? I do have camping terms. It's it's it, right now I'm in the vision stage. I have yet to have an experience. Okay, so here's the thing. I came up with the vision for the standards after having had multiple experiences that were extremely uncomfortable. So now I have standards, but I have yet to execute them. So I want to I want to preambulatory preambulatorily say that. <laughs> but air mattress a must no more sleeping on the ground absolutely not like so and 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 i will say fuck anyone who air mattress shames you like do not go camping with someone who can't get down with you in the way that's gonna amplify you you know what i mean um so that um a lot another one that i find and it's kind of a sneaky secret that i love um taking Benadryl so that I can sleep through the whole night because it's so hard to sleep when you're camping. And this could be sleeping on the ground thing. I don't know. I just find that when I'm camping it's just so I get like three hours of sleep and I'm like, oh my God, it must be six in the morning by now and it's like twelve <laughs> fifteen. And then you wake up, and you're like, oh it must be morning. It's like one thirty. <laughs>
0: You're covered in dew and you're freezing. Yes, exactly.
1: Um, This is another thing. I recently went, I did an Airstream road trip with a friend and she introduced me to this thing. Oh my God, I'm going to share it. They're these poo bags. Have you ever seen these? (laughs) No, I'm horrified. Well, okay, so first of all, they're bags that you can kind of put over anything that sort of ish resembles a toilet, and when you poop in them, it activates some magical secret crystals inside the bag, and it starts to, like, close and desiccate the poop. Anywho, she I didn't get to use them. They sounded pretty magic. She really liked them. So I wanted to share that, and that might be, like, a femme camping hack. I don't know. Um... (laughs)
0: That's a good hack, actually, for people who tour a lot. Like, you can't poop on the tour bus. <laughs> so you'll be on a tour bus going for hours and hours, and you can't poop on the tour bus. So right. you're like, what do I do? Right. Poop into a trash bag? No, poop into this bag.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you can get them on Amazon.
0: I mean, now I know I'm getting everyone for Christmas. <laughs> yes. Okay, Brian wrote in and said that, I'm going to insert his question here with the voice actor, but he basically said he's going to go on this cross country trip promoting a film and he has a very limited budget. He does have his own camper van for backup, but he wants to use couchsurfing.com. He wants to know if he needs to what are the edit what's the etiquette around it? Have we ever done that? When we go on tour do we couch surf? And if you couch surf do you have to give your host a gift or buy them some treats or something. He really wants to know.
1: I am a true believer that if you're sleeping on someone's couch or staying in their house, you need to bring them a gift um i personally we were discussing this before we even started recording and my personal recommendation is that you make a chocolate mold of the of the host right like figure out what their face looks like get a chocolate mold bring it to them that won't be creepy at all um i often bring this is and this is very this is very B, right um I often bring a bunch of treats that are local to me. So I'll bring, like, local coffee, local chocolate. Um, Recently Mm -hmm. I stayed at someone's house and I brought them – there's, like, this fancy cotton candy that's being made in San Francisco now and it tastes like banana Nutella or something. Um, I think it's really important also, Brian, that, um, that you add gifts as a line item in your touring budget in the same way that you would add a line item for incidentals or, you know, any number of things. You need to add that as a line item. Them for the tour, period.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, also if he's going on tour to promote something, he could even make a limited run of something beforehand. Like I have tote bags with Ponyo's face on them. And at the time when I'm making them, I'm like, I'm going to sell every single one of these. So let me factor that into my budget. No. Take, you know, 20 aside and say, I'm going to give these to my hosts with such and such other merchandise things inside in a nice, and I always bring, when I tour now, I always bring um, just like a box of notes to write thank you notes and leave them for people as I go or send them for my next place on the road. So like if you can go on Etsy and buy some vintage dog thank you notes or vintage blank cards, people would really love that.
1: I love it. Agree. Add a personal touch.
0: So you go on Sister Spit a lot. I have been on Sister Spit in the past. I feel like it's very tragic. We have not crossed paths in the van Mm. together at the same time. Mm. Do you have any special touring tips or things that you do to keep yourself comfortable on the road?
1: yes a lot of them are emotional it's interesting because on tour um i don't so one of the one of the things that sister spit tour has taught me is that i'm extremely curatorial about who i'm around i'm extremely curatorial about who's around me even who touches me and with the tour yeah it's fascinating because like um on the tour i don't get to curate who's on the tour so i find that um it's very educational around um you know what what matters to me what is upset me, what's triggering me, and all that to say, like, tour can be very stressful because you're with people who you don't know and you're essentially thrown together and you're living together. Um, and I have found that actually allowing my, like, inner introvert that I think I've suppressed to really come out and really recognize just how much energy I'm outputting. Um, because performing takes a lot out of a person. And a lot of times, especially if you're, if you tend to be a little bit more, um, you know, frenetic or like you're high energy, um or you're kinda of disassociated from what how much emotional output you're giving, um, it's really easy to to like give too much. And so as, as I've gone on the tour more and more, I find that my output decreases by orders of magnitude every single time. So I'll go from like on the first tour, I was outputting a lot. I was, I think I was helping to host sometimes and I was doing merchandise and I was performing and I was trying to entertain and make everybody on the tour laugh. And I quickly went into burnout mode. And then I was like, angry and mean and retaliatory. And then I went to a shame spiral about being mean, angry and retaliatory. It was really bad. Um, and so like, as, as compared to the most recent time I went on tour, which was this March, um, I spoke very minimally outside of the performance space. Um, I would often sit way in the back so that I could kind of have like a lot of quiet time. Um, and when it was time to go into the hotel rooms with like my tour mate or whatever, um, I would actually let them know that I was going to go to sleep or put headphones in or something like that um, and just decompress. So I think that, that for me, the big thing is emotional output. I'm also the queen of packing very lightly. I think this is a, an absolute skill. Everybody comments on it. Everybody's like, wow, how do you pack so little? And I'm going to give you the little rundown. You need to have one outfit like a full outfit and that can be either a dress a romper it could be a skirt and a top it could be any number of things has to be one look per day if you're going to be thrifting you take off one outfit for each day you anticipate thrifting So, if you're going for eight days, but you're thrifting for two, you take six outfits with the anticipation of buying two on the road. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm somebody who wears things red at the thrift store. I, like, I won't wash anything. It's kind of gross, but whatever. (laughs) It works for me. Um, So, then you need one, like, whatever your undergarment of choice is. Oh, wait, you're
0: leaving? Say you're leaving for, like, a 30-day trip.
1: Yeah. That's a lot. Wait,
0: how much was sisters? last two weeks? Two weeks. Did you bring 14 outfits?
1: I actually did not bring 14 outfits because I figured... I was thinking about the climate. We were in a place first of all, we were going to stop in SF in the middle. So I knew that I was going to be able to replenish, but also we were going to be in cold climates. You can pack less in cold climates because you're not sweating and being like really intensely stinky. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed if I go to LA or like Las Vegas, I pack a little bit extra because I know I'm going to be sweaty, but because the cl- items of clothing are smaller, cause I don't need to wear as much clothes. It doesn't end up taking up precious real estate. Mm. Anywho, um, underwear, You need. I mean, like your makeup, your tweezers, your phone charger, and that's it. You need to not over-anticipate your needs. In fact, it's better to under-anticipate them, I find. When- and then you get to have an adventure. Like, let's say you run out of something, you're like, oh my God, guess what? I'm going commando today, or guess what? No bra, or guess what? I'm going to turn this paper bag into a skirt. I don't really know, but-
0: Wait, I'm going to tell you my grossest tip. Yes? Exclusive. exclusive. My grossest touring tip is to bring panty liners to extend your underwear's life because you're sitting in the car OMG. for like four to six hours a day, just kind of like rubbing your crotch on that underwear. And if you don't, like you'll, you'll be wanting to change it more than once a day or, you know, like your underwear's going to get kind of mangy, kind of fast and like gross. So my hottest tip is to bring pads or panty liners on tour with you to kind of like intercept some of that if you know what I mean.
1: I do. I think that's really smart.
0: Thanks. Everyone gets like a, bar, like the green barf emoji face when I ever bring it up. <laughs> to I anyone. It's it. like, I'm like, you want to see behind the door of being femme? Here you go.
1: Yes. We've got to talk about the coochie stuff.
0: That's the coochie <laughs> stuff. I'm just saying I'm wearing no tights right now because it's, <laughs> They wanted to breathe. Sometimes my,
1: like yesterday, I um, was in this toxic beach at, and long beach unexpectedly, and my cooch actually started producing extra liquids in distress. I just want to say when you're emotionally distressed she sometimes does stuff and tour is like a high stress experience so the panty liner thing makes complete sense to me
0: thank you and also like i've been on tour with people i'm not naming names but i've been on tour with people before who like though we shower every night because we stay in hotels which i also i want to tell this guy brian even if you stay at some people's houses stay at hotels sometimes so that you don't have to deal with being gracious to anyone or kind to anyone after performing and meeting strangers But this tour maid I had, even though we had access to showers every night, she was not washing her pants that she wore every day. So after two or three weeks, it was like she smelled and like sitting next to her was a stinky <laughs> affair because the vajay was just rubbing on the fabric and staying there. And so it was like an archive of <laughs> vaginal fluids it smelled like and just like butt sweat and stuff. And her pants were just like, like a time capsule of a few weeks before and it was really harsh. Okay, um, you have a book coming out next year with Feminist Press called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. Yes. Was this your response to the election? Is this part of that series? Yes. Yes. Awesome.
1: Um, I'm really excited. It's kind of like a memoir theory hybrid, Great. which I'm really stoked about. I love, I, I think, I mean, my, sort of like my background is in social science. so I have a lot of um, knowledge and opinions about um like how dieting fits into our current understanding of gender and class and things like that.
0: Great. And you have an anthology out with seal press called yes. hot and heavy. Yes. I love that title. Thank you. It's such a funny title. Yes. Um, great. Is there anything else? Well, how can people find you? Um,
1: I'm really into Instagram. So at Virgie Tovar, V I R G I E T O V as in Victor, a R and my website www.vergitovar.com.
0: Oh, I love that. Sounds so sensual. Yes. Do you have any last minute advice for young fat girls or young artists? Um, every body Oh.
1: <laughs> every body is a good body and your body is nobody else's business.
0: Hands off. None of their business. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.